I got a question for you. So when you select a target, it sounds like you have to get pre-approval from Langley to recruit these people. Is that true? That's true. Yes. You get what we refer to as a provisional operational approval. In other words, you outline, uh, uh, number one, you know, you've developed this person, you've assessed that they have access. You don't recruit people who don't have access to something that we need. Uh, you've been approved, you know, the boss, if you're working for a chief, he or she, you know, encourages you or discourages you. You know, they, they may discourage you if they think it's a waste of time. Uh, but if it's somebody that we think has access or at least potentially has access, then you're encouraged to do that. But you can't pitch somebody unless you've got this approval from headquarters to go ahead. Okay, so you've pointed out the vulnerabilities. Here is what you think you need to persuade this person. Maybe you need a certain amount of money for their retainer. And um, and you get that. But you can't just willy-nilly go and pitch somebody without headquarters saying, yes, this is worthwhile. Do it. There was another spy, too, back in history, Adolf uh, Tolkachev. Uh, he was recruited. He saved the same thing. His information saved billions of dollars in research for the Air Force on, you know, what were the MIG actual capabilities versus what was being said. I don't think people realize sometimes the value of finding the right person. It's not just about, I mean, quite frankly, it is about national security, but part of national security is not spending money on things you don't have to and spending money then on things that are going to really make a difference, like, you know, Star Wars, the strategic defense, the defense initiative. But hey, let's circle back for a second. Let's have a quick discussion about the polygraph before we leave this, because you're wondering our views, and I, I'm wondering your view. So Murph, let's start with you. You know, what did you think? We've all used polygraphs to one extent or another. You used them sometimes too to assess sources. You know, but w what's your feeling? Well, overall, I'm not a big fan of polygraphs. Um, however, you learn to use them to fit the the narrative that you want to put forth. So I'll give you an example. After Escobar was killed, before I left Columbia, there was a walk-in came in, and, and this fellow had worked for Pablo. His story was he'd worked for Pablo. Uh, he had since found religion after Pablo's death, and he wanted to atone for all his sins. And his crimes included making payments to a third-world country president every few weeks to allow the the uh, Medellin cartel aircraft to land on that country's military bases, unload, and then they were a stagement, a, a transshipment point for cocaine coming into Southern Florida. So, you know, that's something you want to believe, but you really have to vet the crap out of that. Well, this guy, because of the person that he was talking about, the president of this particular country, uh, was so well known by our politicians in power at that time not only did our polygraphers come in twice, but so did the agency's polygraphers come in twice. And some of the questions, you know, this guy was, uh, this potential informant was able to describe the rooms that he met in at the military bases he went to where he would meet the president personally. He could tell you what color the floor was, what pictures were hanging on the wall, the shape of the table, how many chairs were the table, all, all the things that would tell you that, hey, he's actually been in the room. Um, and all four polygraph tests he passed. Now, I don't put a lot of credit in a polygraph test, but when you're looking for an informant like that who could indict, potentially lead to the indictment of a president of another country, you know, you tend to want to believe that. Now, the when we finally developed a case and were ready to indict that president, that's when we got a call from the White House saying, uh-uh, <laughs> we're what not indicting this guy. Yeah. You know, not go find somebody happen. else. So yeah. uh, that, I, I don't put a lot of stock in polygraphs, just to be quite honest with you. I think they can be beat. I think people that, that have that uh, uh, particular sociopathic personality, like you said, it's, just, it's not a lie detector. It's a stress detector. Well, if you practice, you can beat stress. Well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a nightmare for polygraph polygraphers because I'm a long distance runner. I have a very low heart rate. Uh, I'm a non-reactor. If you said, uh, is your name uh, John Lewis? And I said, yes, it would still be flat line. Uh, it's, you know, I go I, back to the Seinfeld episode of when Jerry was going to get polygraphed by the sergeant at NYPD he was dating, and they're asking him if he ever watched Melrose Place. You know, and he's trying. Who can? Who knows how to beat a polygraph? Who's the one person? George Costanza. So George says, "It's not a lie if you believe it." You know. Well, that's true. I, and I that's I, well. That that was. I I looked at the polygraph. I mean, three ways. One is teaching out there at, at NSA. 
But really, there was a study done, and actually it was with John Reed and Associates, who I was instructing for at the time. They, they took 300 known cases from NSA, and they went back and they looked at it, and they said, look, if all you did was listen, you know, verbal only, they were accurate about 55% of the time. If you watched body language, you were accurate 65% of the time. If you combined verbal and nonverbal together, you were accurate about 83% of the time. But they said uh, a properly trained interviewer using both verbal and nonverbal communication armed with the case facts can correctly assess truthful or deceptive behavior 93% of the time, which is more reliable than a polygraph. So I always looked at a polygraph like you. I looked at it as a tool. It is not the ultimate outcome. It went in the hiring process. If you could get an admission against interest, that saved you your time. Boom, you're done. You're gone, right? Yeah. If you, if you get a confession, yeah. Uh, now, of course, people can give a false confession, but if you get a confession, that's pretty indicative. You can test, but you can test the confession then because you can test it like Merce said. Hey, if you were in the room, then tell me what's the room like. Who did you hear? What's his nickname? Um, mm-hmm. But but I always used. I looked at polygraph as a means to an end, not not the actual end. We had. Uh, Kansas Bureau of Investigation. We had great polygraphers. They would come in and we would do it on criminal cases. And my whole thing was, it was, if you had a good pre-interview and to your point, structured the questions correctly, then it was the follow-up to the interview. And a lot of times we would work with the uh, KBI agents doing the polygraphs because we'd want them, we didn't want to break continuity. So we we briefed them on the cases and they would come in and they could follow up on the cases. They knew where to go. And so we got several successful conclusions on that, not because the polygraph said, oh, you're a liar. We didn't really care about that. What we cared about is did it provide cracks in the story, things that we could check out. And then the stress of being found out that, hey, no, you're not being truthful. The only way to deal with that stress is to be truthful to relieve that manifestation of that anxiety. So I'm with you. I think I think you can beat um uh, the polygraph, uh, and, and I think the Russians spent a lot of time teaching some of their agents how to do that. You know, Alder James comes to mind, or but other people. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's a stress detector, and the best polygraphers are basically good psychologists. They're observing the body language. They're observing the way what people say. They can. They. I mean, I can do that too. I can tell. I mean, you know, I don't need the machine. The machine is kind of. Uh, adds to the technological little hocus pocus to this. It's like it's a, a tangible thing that they can see. Right. There's something tangible. And Americans love technology. They think they can tell you whether you're lying or not, and so it's part of the show. Uh, it's part of the the thing, you know, to put people under stress. I refer to polygraphs as the colonoscopy of the soul. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my first polygraph, uh, not that I went through, but the first one I saw administered wasn't a polygraph. And I saw a detective. I started off at Salina PD and one of the detectives says, come here, watch this. So it was in the days of when the first photocopiers were coming out and nobody had seen those. So they wrote, they said, put your hand here. And then they asked him a question Then they pressed the button. And what they'd written on one edge of it was lie. And the guy comes out with his palm, you're lying. Oh, how did you know? <laughs> yeah. And conversely, we've had, we, there was a famous case in Iraq after the Gulf War, the last Gulf War, uh, where we had an asset who was uh, claiming that he knew where the uh, Saddam Hussein's sons, uh, Uday and Kusay, were. The guy bombed his polygraph, you know, probably blew ink all over the wall. But this, the case officer was there saying, but there's something about his story that rings true. Turns out the guy was telling the truth. And that's how we, you know, ended up finding the Saddam Hussein's sons. So you, you've got you've to be you know, somewhat uh, skeptical of this. And, you know, I, a good polygrapher, like I said, is an excellent psychologist observing body language, the way people say things. As you said, Morgan, the detail. Okay, you're in this room. You said the television was on. What was the program that was playing? What time of day was it? And they just go down. Choo, 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 choo. Very and if you're perfect. truthful, it, you, it has that ring, as we said, the word verisimilitude. You can hear it. It's truthful. They don't, they, they, People confused who, even if you're being truthful, you get minor details wrong every now and then because people remember things differently. But if I saw a red car blow through a stop sign and hit a blue car, I'm going to repeat that story pretty much, you know, the same thing over and over again. Or like you say, I saw the details. Um, and that's what you're looking for is that are there big things that you can exploit? Hey, real quick question, too, before we start talking about your one case. Um the other thing I noticed, too, with polygraphs and that you were talking about the your the, the, the guy, the kid first tour. 
when you're polygraphing people too, culture is huge. If you don't understand the culture, then you don't understand the reactions or the body language. Vietnamese culture is far different than um, Asian culture, or I mean, uh, when I say Asian, like Indian or uh, somebody who's uh, Arabic. You know, you have to take culture into account too on on polygraphs. It's not a one size fits all, right? Right, right. I mean, I much prefer what we used to do: some operational testing, and um, and you do come have to come up with something that. And I always try to design my operational tests as if I were testing for my worst nightmare in this case, not something stupid. Uh, you remember when uh, Letterman used to have stupid pet tricks? Well, there there are stupid asset testing tricks which have no validity or worth whatsoever. But pe- case officers would try and check the box mechanically by giving them something like, hold this envelope for me and don't open it. And then if they didn't open it, you know, oh, he's he's a good guy. Well, that doesn't prove anything. And that's like candid camera, Alan Funt. You put a couple cookies out there, tell the kids yeah, not. Yeah, right. But you test that person you know, as if this is your worst nightmare. I had some assets that I tested. I mean, we tested them really by, we wanted to make sure that they were really working for us and not for their home service. So what I would do is I would get somebody, a a case officer who is of the same ethnicity of this person and who could pass as a intelligence officer from this country and who would then pitch them and see how they react and then see if they told me that they were pitched by somebody from their home country. That worked when they can do that. And then I've got exactly what happens because, in fact, the person who just pitched them was a uh, foreign documented ethnic person from that country who tells me exactly what what went on. And then my asset tells me the same thing. That makes me feel a lot better that, you know, I've got somebody that at least in this one moment in time, because it's only a frozen moment in time, that this person's loyalty was still to us and was accurate. He is not fabricating. But it's it's an ongoing thing. Uh, I had another asset. It's an art, not a science, right? It is absolutely an art and not a science. And there's no textbook real answer to this. You've got to be constantly aware. You have to be constantly re-recruiting your asset. And I had an asset who was a very sensitive asset, and he had a heart issue. And so one time I was doing a reverse car pickup with him. In fact, he and I had gotten in, a, we'd met somewhere remotely and we were in a cab going to a safe house where I was going to uh, debrief him. Well, it was like that movie Psycho. I don't know if you remember, there was a scene early Are in the movie. Are you talking about the original one? Black yeah, the original movie yeah. where, where, you know, somebody you see, you're in a cab or in a car and you see somebody that sees you. And it, anyways, we were in an intersection And by God, he looks out the car and he says, oh, my God, my ambassador. And his ambassador was standing like 15 feet away. Well, and the guy was about to have a heart attack. So I said, look, don't worry. I look like a European, like a doctor. He knows you have a heart issue. Let's, you know, if he asks, you just tell him that you were with your doctor going for some other tests. Well, it turned out the, the ambassador didn't notice and never asked him. But I wrote that down as a positive indication that this guy was not a double agent, that he actually reacted like he almost had a real heart attack when he saw his ambassador. So you've got to, you know, and that was not a scripted, pre-planned operational test, but I thought it was valid and headquarters agreed with me. Cool. Well, hey, well, let's let's get in. You've got a couple books out, like we said, and you're working on your third one. So, but the first one is really based on something very serious. A.Q. Khan, the Pakistani uh, scientist, uh, you know, nuclear weapons were always a big deal, but they became a huge deal after 9-11 when we started worrying about um, everybody from Al-Qaeda to ISIS to any terrorist group getting a, ter- you know, getting nuclear and when we're looking at what's going on right now, you think about what's going on with Hamas invading Israel and the atrocities that they've done there. The worst thing in the world is to allow a group like Hamas or Hezbollah to get access to nuclear weapons. Uh, and I mean, that's got to be a huge nightmare for CIA, for other folks. But you worked on one of the real nightmares and what this guy was doing and selling in your book, your first book, Living Lies, a novel of Iranian nuclear weapons program, is kind of based around that, right? It's loosely based. Uh, you know, in, in the AQ Khan case, he was a Pakistani metallurgist who had been working in Europe for a uh, consortium called Urenco, which was a German, Dutch, British consortium that uh, basically would produce 
low enriched uranium for nuclear power plants. You need to have low enriched uranium for nuclear power plants. And they had a patented process of enriching uranium up to about 3.74%, something like that, which is all you need for a power plant. However, if you use the same process and you run that uranium gas, that hexafluoride gas, through the centrifuge cascades a few more times, you can get it up to 85-90%, which is what you need for a nuclear weapon. It's the same plumbing. You just keep recirculating the uh, gas and continue to enrich the content up to highly enriched uranium. Well, Dr. Kahn had worked for this, this consortium in the Netherlands and he had been, uh, he was a, I guess you could say, in fact, he was a patriotic Pakistani. Indians had exploded a nuclear weapon in the early 70s, and the Pakistani leadership was desperate to develop their own nuclear weapons. And he volunteered to steal the plans for the uranium enrichment uh, cascades for all these very sensitive designs and bring them back to Pakistan. He did that. He founded a lab that was ultimately named for him, Khan Research Laboratory, and he genuinely could claim that he was the father of the Pakistani nuclear weapons program. Well, he uh, let his ego, which was monumental, get to him, and he ultimately, on his own initiative, decided to sell that same type of technology to other countries, other Islamic countries. In his case, the first customer was the Libyans. And so my team had penetrated had discovered what this network was doing. They penet we penetrated the network, and we were able to then confront uh, George Tenet, the director of CIA, confronted Pakistani President Musharraf in New York and said that Dr. Khan had betrayed his country and was leaking the uh, very sensitive nuclear technology to Libya, which, if you recall, Libya in the years uh, after 9-11, for a long time, had been a state sponsor of terrorism. Muammar Gaddafi. Yeah, Muammar was... Gaddafi, absolutely. And so he was, you know, would have, it might have been a, not a big stretch of the imagination that maybe Gaddafi would give al-Qaeda nuclear weapons. Who knows? I mean, he'd done other things. He'd sponsored Red Army Faction, IRA, all kinds of, of terror groups in Europe before. And maybe he might you know, share nuclear technology or nuclear weapons with a terrorist group. So my group was under, my team was under a lot of pressure to basically disrupt this and bring it down. And that's what we ultimately did. Now, what my team didn't know at the time was that Gaddafi had seen what we were doing in Iraq with his Arab cousin, Saddam Hussein, and his chief of intelligence, Musa Kusa, uh, I guess, urged Gaddafi, that you know, perhaps we should have a uh, rapprochement with the West, with the UK, with the US, and not suffer the fate that Iraq is going through. So the Libyans actually reached out uh, to both the UK and the US to uh, say, what would it take to normalize relations? And our bottom line demand was, you have to give up all of your weapons of mass destruction programs which they did up to an extent, except they continued to balk on the uh, nuclear component. It, it, real quick, don't you, that's, they act just like when you interview, like you might be interviewing sources or we interview suspects. People think, well, have you told us everything? They never tell you everything. Well, they were, we were wondering way later why they were holding back. Yeah. And I think everybody was on the take. They were all getting, you know, a lot of backsheesh from this and this program. This was a couple of hundred million dollar program, and they were all getting their thing. And, and it wasn't until my team basically confronted them with absolutely, you know, smoking gun proof that we knew they had a nuclear program and we had a seizure, the largest seizure in history of nuclear components in uh, the year 2003 with the BBC China. And so the Libyans quickly saw that their bluff had been called, and then they came clean, and then we were able to, re we, the United States, was able to remove all of the nuclear equipment from Libya. A few years later, in 2011, you recall that the Libyan people overthrew Muammar Gaddafi. And an analyst one time said to me, he said, Jim, just imagine if your team had not stopped Libya from getting nuclear weapons there's a strong chance that Gaddafi would have used those nuclear weapons on his own people or maybe a diversionary attack in Europe and killed hundreds of thousands of people. And I thought, you know, that's very possible. 
I mean, somebody like that, he's cornered and he could have done that. Let's go back for a second. I, I, you know, obviously we're not going to talk about sources and methods, but just if we can put it into broad categories, when you say you first found out what was going on, did that come from, if you can't say, did that come from human sources or did that come from technical sources? What, what, how did you get that first indication something was going on? Initially, it was a very, very good technical source, multiple technical sources that we were uh, very innovative. We weren't I, I'm, I'm a I'm a digital doofus, but I have I know people at CIA and NSA who are absolutely world class at developing ways to uh, technically collect information. And we developed we were able to get absolutely again smoking gun uh, proof that Dr. Khan was supplying this to the Libyans initially, and we had we had everything we had the whole bit. In fact. We had so much information. When I briefed President Bush on this, I told him, I said, you know, we have enough information to take the CIA nuclear. We had the plans. We could have developed our own nuclear weapons. Of course, one of the senior officers quickly interjected, but sir, we would never do that. (laughs) How do we know? (laughs) How do we know? You know, the only problem was CIA, I heard one time CIA did create a nuclear hand grenade, Murph. Were you aware of that? Uh, what do you call it? Well, no, no. It's the only problem was you couldn't throw it far enough. So, <laughs> but well, anyways, I, thank I, you very I, much. I, I, yeah. used, I used the experience I had in in that operation when I wrote my book, Living Lies, which is not about the Pakistanis or Dr. Khan, but it's about the Iranians. And I I got the idea for this book back in 2015 when the United States was in the negotiations with Iran. It was something called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is a real mouthful. But in exchange for them uh, halting their nuclear weapons development, we would then remove or relieve the trade sanctions. And my comment to a very good friend of mine was, you know, what if they cheat? And so I took that idea. I'm shocked. You you think the mullahs? You think the Ayatollah, the IRGC, the Quds Force? These these are respectable people. What makes you think at all, Jim? You're a seasoned professional. I can't believe that you think that they would cheat. So that's that's the premise of this novel that we have Iran going into these negotiations, and they have decided that okay, let's give up our uranium enrichment program. What we don't know, however, is Iran no longer needs that because they have gotten the fissile material, the guts of the bomb, through sources out of the former Soviet Union. So they don't need the enrichment process. So they're giving up something they don't need in any event. And then they're feeding information to us through a very clever double agent run by one of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard generals. And he has got the covert nuclear weapons program going on back in Iran. And we have a very bright CIA officer and an FBI agent who are running uh, sources, in real legitimate sources, inside of the Iranian nuclear weapons program. And so you've got a, a battle of the sources information. One that, in this case, in the novel, the White House and the senior CIA officers believe that, no, Iran is being honest. At the same time, we've got sources saying, no, they're not. There's actually a covert program. And ultimately, the uh, the the legitimate sources, there's three legitimate sources, are arrested, and it's up to the CIA to go in and rescue these people. And this, you know, is a commitment that CIA makes to its clandestine sources that will go to hell and back to get you out of trouble. And that's the theme in actually both of my two novels, is once we've made that commitment to a clandestine source, we will do everything within our power that's possible to get you out of trouble. And so that's the kind of the climax of the book is going after these uh, these Iranian assets who've been compromised through a uh, actually a cyber um, a cyber snafu. In the book, the CIA has decided to put a lot of its sensitive uh, information on a cloud computing company's servers. And what we don't know is that the general systems administrator has been recruited by the Iranians. And so even though they've got all kinds of firewalls and encryption, it doesn't matter if you have a source on the inside. I don't care how high those walls are or how deep that moat is. If I've got an insider, if they've got an insider, you're toast. Yeah, if you've got a trusted insider, that beats uh, any kind of technical access because they've got keys to the kingdom. Well, let me, let's me let's not go too far from there. Um, I actually got to do a webinar with David Sanger from the New York Times who wrote the book. 
about Olympic Games. Were you uh, were you involved in that operation, um, which has now been described in the media? Let's say between the U.S. and Israel to uh, uh, you know interfere uh, with the Stuxnet, what we talked Stuxnet and Flame, and to interfere with the Iranian centrifuges. Was that happening while you were still at the agency? No, I had retired in '05, and as we often say, I can neither confirm nor deny anything about about Olympic Games. But but I thought that was. But to your point, it, it's very interesting because we know that they're cheating. We we know that they're attempting to increase, you know, and enhance their uranium, and that just all goes back to um, what you did with AQCon. In the in the threat spectrum, let's say zero is like it's happy days. It's you know, leave it to Beaver, you know. Wally and 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 Beaver, it's just Happyville, and then ten is it's hellscape, right? Where was where were we headed with AQ Khan and his entire network? How close were how close was that to the proverbial doomsday scenario? Damn close, damn close. Uh, you know, if the um, if the negotiations they were stalled, they said we don't have a nuclear program. All we have is a peaceful nuclear reactor at Tajura. And they were stonewalling that, I guess, thinking that they could get away with it until we basically called their their bluff and said, well, then explain why we took off several hundred thousand components off of this ship, the BBC China, which is right now in Tripoli Harbor. Can you explain that? They called a recess and two hours later, it was, well, praise Allah, you're right. We do have a nuclear program. Uh, So. I think we were pretty darn close to them developing covertly uh, over the next, you know, several years. A, um, a well, I mean, they had the whole thing. They had the turnkey thing. They had not only the plans for an enrichment plant, but they had the plans for the weapon. This was a 14 kiloton weapon, which was the same yield as what destroyed Hiroshima and killed 140,000 people. It was a proven design. And considering what's going on in the world right now and where Iran is using, you know, Hamas and Hezbollah as proxies and the Houthi rebels, I mean, there's nothing worse in my mind. And like I said, growing up there was a different time, but there's nothing worse in my mind than having a nuclear-capable Iran with this. How much of AQ Khan stuff ended up in Iran in terms of, you know, the the, the facility? How much did his stuff facilitate the Iranian weapons development? I think it was – without that, I think they wouldn't have a program. Uh, it was a, um, they got designs. We, we know that. Uh, so he was, he wasn't just doing Libya. He had a number of, these were private clients, by the way, they were not Pakistan helping Libya. Or this Pakistan. wasn't government to government. No, this was, was he was freelancing. This was the first time we had a private proliferation network. In fact, when, uh, director Tenet confronted president Musharraf over this, the Pakistani president, Musharraf said, I'm going to kill that son of a bitch. They hated each other. And and George Tenet said, no, sir, we don't expect you to do that. Instead, he put Dr. Khan under house arrest for the next five years. And Khan had to make a confession on, on Pakistani t- TV. But uh, this was a private nuclear proliferation network and the most dangerous in history. And people sometimes ask me, is it possible that there's another AQ Khan network out there somewhere. And I said, well, okay, you got to realize that Dr. Khan was not only the head of Khan Research Laboratory, he had unique access to all of this, and he had a lot of people in his pocket. He had his own public relations staff. He had a tremendous ego. I jokingly said, AQ Khan is like if, if you took George Washington, Robert Oppenheimer, and Elvis, and you rolled them all up into one figure. That's how popular he was. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Exactly. Well, let me read a let me read a quote. I don't want you to get away from this. Uh, I pulled this up too, just doing a tad bit of research on you. This is what George Tennant said, Murph, about uh, Jim and his team talking about this. Jim, what you and your team have achieved will rank up there as one of the most spectacular intelligence accomplishments in the history of the CIA. And coming from somebody who went through nine eleven and all the stuff you see. That was no small feat. That's why I wanted to kind of sandbag you a little bit, say, where were we on the threat spectrum? Because this wasn't just like, oh, well, we took off, you know, a box of uh, AK-47, so that one ended up, okay, that's not that that's, you shouldn't do that, but that's kind of pedestrian, but talking about taking out an entire nuclear program? Yeah, this is a big deal. I tell students of mine, I say, you know, working a counter-proliferation operation, that's psychologically righteous. 
I, I read where uh, A.Q. Khan was actually originally born in uh, India, right? That's correct. In fact, his antipathy for the Indians was uh, there in 1947 when a lot of the uh, pack, well, a lot of the Muslims were leaving India and going to the newly created state of Pakistan. I was told that uh, that there was an Indian border guard who saw that he had a nice shiny watch that his parents that, that Dr. Khan's parents had given him for his birthday. And the guard forced him to give him the watch, and so he hated he hated the Hindus, he hated the Indians, and uh, I mean I'll credit him with being a loyal Pakistani at least to that uh, effect. Uh, he's now referred to as the father of the Islamic bomb, uh, but yeah, he was originally born in India and lived there until so many Muslims had to move to Pakistan after the partition. Well, given the demonstrated hate they have for each other, it's, it's kind of ironic that an Indian went into Pakistan and created their nuclear program. Well, yeah, yeah, somebody born in India, but he was a true blue Pakistani. Well, and you know, they've come close a couple of times. I remember flying over to Pakistan. Um, we were on British Airways flying over, and it, they called it Kashmir, but we had to take Pakistani scares, I called it, coming back out. They referred to it as disputed territory, and we weren't allowed to photograph anything from the air. I mean, they were pretty um, wrapped around the axle on stuff. But yeah, I mean, that's there's so many tensions going on. Um, but how long did it take you to work this, you know, from the time you, like you said, you got some indications from technical sources. How long did it take you to work this till you got up to the point where you had that uh, confrontation, or I shouldn't say confrontation, but you had that uh, heart-to-heart with Musharraf? It was almost, it was somewhere between nine and ten years. It was a long time. It's a, one of my assets said, he said, you know, good cooking takes time. Well, so do good intelligence operations. And people ask me sometime how uh, realistic are my two spy novels. And I said, 99% pretty accurate. The one thing where I take some liberties is I compress the time scale. Because if I were to write a book that takes, say, nine, ten years, eight, nine, ten years <laughs> it would put you to sleep. And But it's, you know, it's got to be very methodical. It's, uh, I'm sure you guys ran some operations that took months, if not years, to put together. And you've got to, you got to just, you have to be able to react and, and adjust course. Uh, I mean, we, I'll be candid here. We actually started my program out against an, another proliferant nation entirely, but because we had created some entities in areas where they might come across us, we came across the, then the elements of the con network. And it was not pure serendipity. We were in a target-rich environment, and we had to adjust course to where we were then looking at not one but two different nuclear weapons programs. Is there anything out there we're not aware of? Um, are there, I mean, to the, uh, of course there's things, but I'm saying just, where's, is there another AQ con out there? And I think Murph was kind of getting that. Is there another network like this out there? Well, that, was, that was what the uh, deputy director of operations, the DDO, asked me. And I said, if there is one, it's probably in a former Russian state or Soviet state, uh, someone who has access to that type of thing, um, you know, uh, yeah, but I don't know. We don't know. We don't know the unknown unknowns. You know, there are the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. I, I would think that there might be uh, someone, maybe a, a general somewhere, somebody who has access to this, a little cabal that's put together this. But he had such unique access uh, to... Not only access, but knowledge. I mean, he, like you said, he was metallurgist. He knew the process. Right. He was, he's a con- he was a consummate networker. He was a better networker than he was a nuclear scientist, but he recruited a lot of Europeans in Europe that would not give any kind of counterintelligence uh, apprehension to anybody. You know, these were not Pakistanis in Europe. These were these were people from European countries who actively collaborated with him to supply him with the sensitive technology that he needed, first for Pakistan and then later for Libya and other customers. You know, one Russian name just just jumps out at you. The guy Victor Boot has gone back to Russia now. Oh man, that was. I, I don't want to get off on political things, but that was a politically stupid thing for us to do. He was worth, and I, you know, I, I have all the sympathy in the world for that basketball player, but he was worth a hundred times what she was. They got the better end of the deal, and I said, don't be surprised if Victor Boot somehow 
is involved with supplying the, the Russian forces in Ukraine with sophisticated weapons and things. I mean, that was a master stroke for the Russians to get him back. Didn't the head yeah. of the Wagner group, like, blow up in a plane? Hmm, is there a I job opening so. for the head of Wagner? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, Victor Boot would certainly, he'd be my choice if I was Vladimir Putin. So yeah. what was it, Murph, maybe episode 20 or something? We go back, one of the one of the DEA guys we had on, Rob Saharashevsky, him and his team ran Operation Relentless, the operation to get Victor Boot, and we brought him back on when he was released. And I'm like you. The example I gave is think about during – let's go back to World War II. Would we have traded a uh, – if we had Hitler in custody, would we have traded him for a low-level general? I, I don't care who it was. I mean, no. Yeah, you know, it just or, or maybe maybe somebody a little lower like Himmler or uh, Goering. No, no, we wouldn't, we wouldn't. And I just okay, so I just think that was a absolutely ludicrous exchange. Uh, again, I have all the sympathy in the world for the basketball player who was arrested on spurious charges. She had a minor. I mean, okay, you know, uh, Murph, you're you're much more of a drug cognoscenti than I am, but she had just a minor amount of this stuff. She, it was stupid. Yeah, it was very, really stupid, but she shouldn't have been in a, in a Russian prison. And boy, they were brilliant the way they, oh, yeah, we trade her for Victor Boot. Once again, we're the laughing stock of the world. Well, yeah, we released six hostages, uh, five hostages for $6 billion. All you do is you enable when you do that. We traded, guess what? Now they've got a second reporter being detained in Russia now. Not only yeah. the Wall Street reporter, but a second reporter. Um, when you when you play that game, um, Anyway, so let's let's talk real quick too about your second book here, um, in the twinkling of an eye, a novel of biological terror and espionage. I mean, there's two things that obviously concern me. Um, I'm just talking as a citizen. One is nuclear proliferation. You know, the hands of the wrong people. The other thing too is bioweapons. You know, you, you look at COVID was an example of what could a bioweapon look like and what could it do. And I'm still not – I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't wear tinfoil on my hat, but I'm still not convinced to this day. I don't – number one, I don't trust the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party. I don't trust Xi Jinping. I don't trust their motives. And I have no doubt – they may have called it an accident, but there's – to me, there's no doubt it, it originated from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. It jumped containment, whether they had bad processes. But that thing was manufactured. That was not a naturally occurring. And now a lot of the reporting and stuff coming out shows it that. But – I say that was my opinion, but just but that's kind of you. But your novel talk about that too. The the, the in the twinkling of an eye, biological terror. I mean, you got with the what's, who's the equivalent of the AQ con on the biological side? That's a great question, uh, Morgan. It you know if you think nuclear is scary, the the thing about nuclear weapons is there's always a choke point, and that choke point is called fissile material. If you do not have uranium two thirty five or plutonium two thirty nine, you don't have a bomb. There are no ch real choke points for biological weapons. The knowledge is ubiquitous. It's all over. There's thousands and thousands of people that have the requisite skills to create, if not a crude, you know, not a sophisticated maybe, but a, at least a crude biological weapon. And the material, everything, there's really no choke points on that. So biological weapons scare the heck out of me. And that's why I devoted my second book to that, uh, using some of the latest advances in genetic uh, you know, advancements like CRISPR and other things to where they develop a super biological genetic weapon. And I had consulted with several very good uh, sources on biological weapons programs and things, people who are our true experts. And they told me, Jim, whatever you write, if it's not possible today, it'll be possible in the next 10 or 15 years, virtually anything you can think of. And so I thought, okay, that gives me a lot of liberty to come up with, you know, a Russian and North Korean conspiracy to develop a genetic weapon that they can use not only for assassination, but eventually for, for genocide. And so the novel proceeds on that basis. We have a disaffected uh, Russian scientist whose father had died at Chernobyl in 1986, and he himself, the young Russian man, as a teenager, had lost his eye due to a botched cataract operation. The cataracts were caused by the radiation in the atmosphere. And uh, he grows up the son of a hero of the Soviet Union, and he only learns later that his father didn't have to die, and all these other firemen didn't have to die, but it was because of this poor design at the Chernobyl reactor, and then he didn't have to suffer the loss of his eye, and he has passed along genetic abnormalities to his young daughter, who has now developed a 
very serious case of leukemia. So he's, he's, this is a person under stress, and he is recruited by a very, very smart FBI agent. She's an ethnic Korean herself. Wait, wait a minute. Isn't that a, isn't that a contradiction in terms? <laughs> that's our standard. We have to make one FBI joke every smart FBI agent. I'm sorry. We're just, that's our standard. You know, we have to make fun of the FBI once an episode. Well, this, this particular FBI agent in my book, she's a, uh, had escaped from North Korea and uh, be- was adopted by an American military officer and uh, grows up to, um, you know, hate North Korea and what they've done to her family. And she is a very smart gal. She's actually based on a good friend of mine who's an ethnic Korean female FBI special agent and very brave very smart, and she recruits the young Russian and runs this operation to basically bring this down. Well, you've got some interesting stuff in there, too, because I like the use of, uh, obviously, when you talk about what you can do with artificial intelligence, he's kind of becomes the $6 million man with his eye. You know, and I will tell you this. So the reason I brought up James Olson earlier, I was speaking at an event in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. I was the second speaker. He was the third speaker. By the time he got done, nobody knew who I was. No, I mean, it's like once he 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 knocked it out of the park. But what was weird, well, weird, it worked out for me. We both were flying out of the same airport. He had a rental car. So I said, can I hop in with you? I had two and a half hours alone with Jim Olson to pick his brain on stuff to the extent he could tell me. I said, okay, what's the, what's the thing? What is the most craziest thing you're working on or that they were working on? And he looked at me, he goes, brainwaves. You know, and I'm sitting here thinking, boy, where could you take that? But, but, but to your point, things that we thought were impossible. Guess who, basically who created the first, in a sense, iPhone or two way pager was CIA. You know, the, the invented stuff. Um, guy that I met, uh, and he's a good acquaintance. But uh, do you remember the name Glenn Gaffney? Oh, yeah, he's a good friend of mine. Cool. So Glenn uh, helped me out. I uh, picked his brain about some stuff I, for my book that I'm working on too. But uh, Glenn, you know, retired as the uh, assistant director, but he was the head of director of science and technology. He told me something one time. It, it, this was his phrase. He said, here's what I told my people. He said, if the rules of the game aren't working for you, change the game. You know, don't change the rules. It's not about playing by their rules. It's change the game. And, and that's what I like what you've done. You've kind of looked at this and changed the game on uh, stuff. It's like communicating with a doll through artificial intelligence. Well, I, I tried to, in, in the novel, in, in The Twinkling of an Eye, I tried to design the perfect asset. And the perfect asset, the young Russian man who loses his eye, it's replaced with a prosthesis, an, an artificial eye, but it's got nanotechnology and AI in it to where anything he looks, sees, or hears, he doesn't have to take photographs of it. It's already recorded in his eye. And then he would take the eye out and put it in the hands of this doll who has AI in her, and then she would transmit that to Langley. It's like the perfect spy tool. And the uh, doll herself has got this AI, and I said it's like, you know, think about either Alexa or Siri on on steroids. (laughs) And and she's she's almost sentient, meaning that she's almost, you know, has come to full uh, knowledge and full cognizance. Self-awareness, yeah. Self-awareness. And so I tried to use that AI as a way, you know, the the weakest point of any intelligence operation is communication. And if you don't have communication with your asset, you don't have an operation. So that's what in this book, I've solved that not only can he collect the information, but he can transmit it to Langley or to the Hoover building, you know, seamlessly uh, with this artificial intelligence. Hey, this is a this is a an interesting thing I want to ask you about because a lot of people think the C that you know according to executive order you know one two triple three but um, CIA is prohibited from operating on U.S. soil and that's not quite technically correct. You can do things you know in combination like say with FBI, um, but one of the things did any of you talked about you had you had assets uh, you know and agents in place but sometimes they would leave like you say leave their home country and come to the United States and work at an embassy. You, you had to hand those over, right? So you had to transfer control of those over to FBI, or did you share? Not, not necessarily, but we had to let them know. Yeah, that this was it. One of our one of our assets was in country. Uh, I mean, sometimes it would be joint handling. Uh, now, if they came across some really good counterintelligence information about, say, a U.S. spy, uh, we would definitely be sharing that. Um, and you know the the cooperation between CIA and FBI has has fortunately matured a lot since twenty uh, since nine uh, eleven, 
And I, uh, today, I mean, the courses I teach, I teach probably as many FBI special agents as I do CIA officers. And um, I almost ended up at FBI myself. I, after law school, I applied and there was a hiring freeze on for two years. So things are always personal to us. Um, and of course, there, you know, there's, you, I know, I knew some folks at the Bureau when Robert Hansen was arrested. It's like I knew some people worked right across the hall from him. Always knew he's kind of weird. But, um, when you know, like Ames was arrested in '94, and Harold James Nicholson was kind of—he wasn't—he wasn't as sophisticated as Ames. But um, how did that? How did that impact you personally? Because that was like right in the middle of your career, right? I mean, okay, I'll give you a graphic example. One of the fir- earliest uh, traders that we had was a man named Ed Howard. Yep. Ed Howard was a trainee who was fired because of a number of things. He had drinking alcohol, and yeah. uh, substance abuse problems, alcohol problems. He rifled a woman's purse on an airplane because her baby had annoyed him, and he stole like fifteen dollars. And so he was he was cashiered. He was fired, and he went to work for the KGB. Now, what you might not know is Ed Howard had been a good friend of mine. We had entertained him in our house a couple of times. Uh, he had been on a certain country desk before I was on the country desk. We got to be pretty good friends. So in nineteen eighty five, he after he had quit. He called my house and my wife answered. I was out of town and he told her, you know, oh, it's Ed. And he said, I left the New Mexico or I left the agency. I'm now working for the New Mexico state legislature. And ultimately, a year later, when he defected to the Soviet Union in 1986, my wife said she felt like there was somebody else on the line listening to his conversation, uh, hopefully to talk to me, an active CIA officer. And so his KGB handler was probably there with him. Well, later, a couple of years after that, I was being transferred to another station. And we have a protocol in the agency where if you're going from station A to station B, then headquarters would then do a summary of any counterintelligence counterintelligence exposures you'd had in the past. And you would get a copy. Station A would get a copy. Station The receiving station would get a copy. So I saw the CI write-up about me, and on it, it said bluntly, betrayed by the traitor Ed Howard. Now, how would you like that? Betrayed by the traitor Ed Howard. And you know what he did is, I mean, of course, I'm reading the historical stuff, and I am you know don't have firsthand knowledge like you do. But one of the things I was aware of, the one of the ways he evaded FBI surveillance, because I think they were closing in, he used some of his tradecraft. Right. He had a pop-up doll he created. Uh, he did some other things. He he called a doctor about an appointment that he was supposed to have, and he made you know he did the recording, so it sounded like he was still in the house. Uh, I mean, you know, he was a smart guy. I knew him, uh, you know, really smart guy. But ultimately, uh, he did this out of revenge. I don't want to bag on the bureau, but I mean, this was I don't know if they put rookies on this, but this was like basic stuff. I mean. Um you think that there would have been uh, maybe I'm just you know in hindsight you know Monday morning quarterbacking, but you think they would have had maybe a few more people on him if he's with the knowledge he had and what he knew and the damage he could do. You think that there would have been more emphasis on uh, putting assets on him? Well, you know, you mentioned Morgan earlier in the program, uh, Tolkachev. We're we're we know that he was going to be uh, Ed Howard was going to be Tolkachev's handler, so he knew Tolkachev's identity. Oh wow! So it's sure. That among the other people that betrayed Tolkachev, probably Aldrich James did too, but Ed Howard betrayed him as well. And and that's got to hurt when one of your own, um, you, you know. It's like, it's, a kick in the, it's like a kick in the stomach. In fact, my third novel is about treachery inside the CIA. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the case, the Brian Kelly case. Uh, Brian Kelly was a CIA officer accused of being a Russian mole. And his life went into hell, into purgatory for a long time. And ultimately, he was exonerated when they caught the real spy, who was Robert Hansen. And uh, they had the same access. They lived in the same area. And like this that. guy was vilified and just put under. I know who exactly who you're talking about because of Ames. He was rehabilitated. They gave him a medal. And about two or three years later, he died prematurely of a heart attack because he had been so you know, mistreated. So I took that, that, that thesis and I've kind of turned it around 
and thought, what if we had a very accomplished case officer who's falsely accused of being a mole, and then he is exonerated, but he is so bitter, he thinks, screw them, now I'm going to really do it. I use one of uh, Ames's quotes in my book, but I talk about. It, but basically, you know what he it, really what he talked about and what he got into was it was a betrayal of trust, and that's what Ames did. That's what Howard did. That's what all of these folks have done. And look, there's been bad cops, there's been bad FBI agents, DEA folks, and it, it ultimately goes down to betrayal of trust. And a lot of it, I think, goes down to it's very rarely ideological for Americans. It's like you say, it's money, it's um, ego, revenge, um, revenge. Yeah, like you said, that's a that's a good motive. Like I say, money is the least of it. Money is just a symbol. It's just a, it's a it's way. It's one of their ways of determining their value, I think, is like, how much am I worth to you? Oh, I had an asset who once he, he asked for a certain salary. And I said, well, that's a lot of money. He said, it's a measure of your respect for me. What yeah, about the money? It was about how much do you I value would, me? Yeah. Right. And by the way, he was right. He was priceless. I mean, it was. <laughs> but you don't was, want to tell them they're priceless because then they want even more. They become a real prima donna, right? Right. Oh, yeah. Well, I had a whole. You know what? You, you know where the origin of the term prima donna is? That's the first singer in the opera. That's the, the, the star. And I used to say that my whole team were prima donnas, <laughs> but they were so good. They were so good. And you're willing to cut slack for a prima donna that you wouldn't for somebody who's a mediocre person. But, you know, sometimes you have to cut a little slack. This person is quirky. They've got some character things. I mean, we're all quirky to an extent. But I'm willing to cut some slack for a prima donna. You maybe get them to tone it down a bit. But when they're that damn good, that's fine. Mm, they got to be able to deliver. Yeah, you don't want to let them know they're that damn good, but but you got to keep them on the hook. Yep. Well, hey, dude, this has been this has been great. I know we could go gone a lot more directions, but I just want to make sure people know now that it's on Amazon. Um, how what's the easiest way for people to find you? Well, they can go on LinkedIn if they want. My two books are on Amazon: "Living Lies" and "In the Twinkling of an Eye." Um, but I am on LinkedIn, James Lawler. Uh, they can certainly, I, I, I uh, talk and count. In fact, I've this, later this afternoon, I have a young man who contacted me through LinkedIn who's interested in an agency career. I, I have, this happens three and four times a week. And I'm always happy to advise young people, here's how to get into the intelligence community. Where are you now in your life? Here's what you need to do. And if you don't have a, a, you know, you need at least an undergraduate degree and preferably a graduate degree. If you have linguistic skills or go in the military, join military intelligence, get your officer's commission, you know, they'll pay you to get a graduate degree. There's various routes that you can make yourself attractive to the intelligence community. Very good. Yeah. Well, hey, I was going to show you something, too. Uh, belonging to the Association of Former Intelligence Officers does have its benefits. So in honor of uh, Enrique Prada, which we had on earlier, he was with part of Operation Jawbreaker. They've got the new challenge coins out. I know the folks on can't see it, but there's the challenge coins out that come from the CIA store on uh, Jawbreaker. But this was the one I thought was pretty. I've got the KGB cufflinks, but now I have the official KGB challenge coin, comrade. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Yeah, Rick Prado is a national hero. Um, he is. And one time, my son, who was a Marine, he went over to uh, Rick's house, and he came back and he said to me, Daddy, Mr. Prado is a dangerous man. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah, just be glad he's on our side. Absolutely. And you know, the dangerous ones are the ones that don't look dangerous. You know, it's like you walking, walking past you on the street, you'd look like, oh, it looks like my uncle or somebody else not realizing is that that was part of what made you good at what you did. It's not it's not the James Bond. There's no real thing like James Bond where they're dashing and in their Armani suits and, you know, the fancy stuff. It's like it's the people you would never suspect. Well, I had a boss on one of my tours and he was kind of a tall, uh, athletic jock, you know, and he once said, he said, you know, Jim, he said, you just don't look or act like a spy. And I said, you know, I think that's a good thing. <laughs> that's how you say thank you and keep going. <laughs> that, that's, that's, how you, that's how you stay alive and stay in your job. So, well, look, Jim, first of all, thank you. Um, and as always, we, this is us saluting you. Thank you for your service to our great country. You did some uh, – that's why I wanted – I thought the AQ Con story and how it factors into your book is kind of leading. But if people – it reminds me of Men in Black when uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith are in there and they're, Will Smith gets indoctrinated for the first time. It's like, oh, my God, you know, are we going to die? You know, you know, we're under attack. Son, we're always under attack. If people only knew 
Absolutely. What was going on. Um, they may not sleep as peacefully as they do, but this is us saluting you, saying thank you for allowing us to sleep peaceably in our bed at night. Well, thank you, Morgan, and thank you, Murph. Uh, you guys in law enforcement, I know you're out there protecting us every day. We should be down on our knees thanking God for what you do. Well, and I want to echo what Morgan said about you. Thank you for your service to our country. Uh, it's our unsung heroes that carry the most weight, it seems like, that nobody ever hears about. And that's why we like bringing folks on the show here, just like you, Jim, that that can give us a glimpse into the, the real spy world and, and the successes that we enjoy that nobody ever hears about. The greatest stories never told. I appreciate it. I'll conclude with one last observation. Uh, I gave a talk about uh, how I recruit sources one time about seven or eight years ago at NSA's Security and Counterintelligence Day. And at the end of my talk, a young man in the back of the audience raised his hand and he said, Mr. Lawler, do you consider yourself to be a moral person? And I said, I've reflected on that a lot. And the, what I've concluded is the same way that I believe that a young Marine Corps sniper who takes an Al-Qaeda bomb maker into his sights at a thousand yards is a moral person. I feel like I'm also a moral person as long as I do this for national security reasons. Where it becomes immoral is how much I enjoy it. Did he? Did that stop him or did he continue on? No, he, he laughed. He, I mean, well, it's like I, the interview of a Marine sniper. They one time, you know, talking about taking out terrorists and said, don't you feel anything when you shoot snipers he goes, or shoot terrorists? He says, yeah, just a little recoil, but it's recoil, all good. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure he gets a kick out of it, too. God bless him. <laughs> well, hey, God bless you. Hang tight. Don't you guys go anywhere. Everybody else, stay tuned for the debrief. You know, he is dangerous in a different kind of way than Rick Prado. Rick Prado could kill you like 17 different ways, I think. But uh -huh. Jim Jim could screw your mind up so bad, you, you would not know what you were doing and who you're doing it for. And he would get you to do everything he wanted just by sheer manipulation, which he got us to. He got us to buy 150 copies of each book and give them away for free. I don't know how he did it, but I got a big <laughs> box coming in. I tell you, he's so good at it. I think he could probably convince you to kill yourself. <laughs> there is the perfect crime. <laughs> But you know what? He also introduced us to a future guest that we're going to have on the show. In fact, I just spoke to him the other day. Um, we have a tentative interview date, but he's he's got a lot going on in his life, so we may have to postpone it. But And it may be into 2024 before we get that guest on here, former KGB spy. And I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, he Illegal resident, member. Got to use the correct term of art, comrade. Yeah. Illegal resident. Yeah. Spy. Spy. I did. <laughs> Spy. He was, I tell you, I've listened to the podcast with this guy. And so we, we don't want to say too much more, but it, but thank you, Jim. Yes. First of all, here's us saluting you again. Thank you for your service to this country. It was great stuff. So if you enjoyed this, head on over to Spotify, Apple, hit those five stars. Remember, it's magic. We don't know how it works. David Blaine, David Copperfield, Magic Kingdom, all rolled into one. We don't know how, but we know it really helps. So head on over to Game of Crimes podcast for more information about the show. And also make sure you get Jim's books, Living Lies, a novel of the Iranian nuclear weapons program, and In the Twinkling of an Eye, a novel of biological terror and espionage. That is on our book list. Order those things. Like Merce said, it, is, it will just keep you up at night for two reasons. Number one, you're going to keep reading. And number two, mm -hmm. it's going to scare the shit out of you. Absolutely. And do us a favor. Tell us, uh, tell your friends about uh, Game of Crimes. Uh, every place I go, I always pr promote our program. And I know people are logging on. But uh, we're trying to grow the podcast audience here. So tell your friends if you like what you hear. Um, if they don't like Morgan, that's okay. I'm still a good guy. So they can you're come and listen to me. Guy. And Murph, it's funny you should say that because this past week I got a LinkedIn request from a buddy of mine. He he decided to LinkedIn with me. We should have done this years ago, but his somebody at Springfield, Missouri Police Department heard his name on our podcast mm -hmm. of this friend of mine. He was the one I told you about. We kind of talked about he was I was involved in a shooting with him. So um, Harold Milliron. So if you're listening, Harold, there you go. So this tells you how big this thing. Springfield, Missouri guy says Harold, you were on the podcast anyway. Sweet. Sweet. Let's bring him on. 
Hey guys, tell one, share one, give the gift that is Game of Crimes. Also follow us on that thing called show, 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 social media, Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram, but you got to go to Patreon, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we have more content there than probably what we do on our free podcast. We've got American Made review coming up for our Narcometer. We've got mm-hmm. Q&A. We've got um, 911, What's Your Emergency? We've got our Warden of the Throne. We have uh, You Can't Make This Shit Up. I mean, just everything. We've got a ton of stuff over there so make sure you head on over patreon.com slash game of crimes and also make sure you check out our favorite mafia queen sandy salvato in our group go to facebook just type in game of crimes fans answer a couple questions it's easy guys it's easy just answer a couple questions get even close you're going to be admitted and we're going to have a lot of fun so that's how this thing rolls that's how this thing ends and the way to end it is to tell you and thank you guys once again for playing the biggest baddest most dangerous game of all the declassified, unredacted Game of Crimes. 